Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychotherapist and author, Kara Hoppy. Hello, Kara, and welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And today we're going to be talking about surviving parenthood. And for those that don't know, Kara Hoppy is a psychotherapist, teacher, feminist, and she's a mother herself. She has spent more than a decade as an inclusive therapist working with individuals and couples towards healing and growing and toward becoming grounded, integrated people with better access to their own instincts, wisdom, and creativity. Her work has been featured in such publications as The Atlantic, Parents Magazine, Fatherly, and Your Tango. Hoppy also offers virtual retreats for parents and expected couples, all based on her new book, Baby Bomb, a relationship survival guide for new parents. How are you today, Kara? Um, I'm well. I'm well. <laughs> So sorry for if I laughed at your title. I was just imagining this big explosion because I want to go into <laughs> <laughs> this book. You have this lovely book all about surviving parenthood, and it's titled Baby Bomb. And I'm actually looking at the cover right now, and it actually looks like a very lovely bomb. It's an explosion of hearts in multi-colors, and it's really quite pretty. So what's the basic idea behind a Baby Bomb? Well, as you said in my intro, Zach, I'm a couple therapist. I was a couple therapist before I was a parent. And I like to have thought like I knew, I mean, I, I was helping people with their relationships and was enjoying like a really happier, more often than not relationship with my husband, Charlie. And I didn't know many parents don't know so many different things change in parenthood. I didn't know how my marriage was going to be impacted. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize I was going to become a different person and my husband was going to become a different person. And our partnership was going to have to like really level up to mm. reflect this new status now that we were um, not just lovers and partners, but parents and like what that meant with um collaboration and intimacy and teamwork. I, even as a couple therapist, I just didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. So when I was in the throes of it with my husband, I just went to every tool from my couple therapy toolbox and we were applying them to our own partnership. And I was like, I need to write a book about this because mm -hmm. this is a thing, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's where baby bomb came was from my own bomb in my marriage, which mm. was obviously having our son was the greatest thing ever, period. And like, we had to level up our marriage. Mm. Um, and I and we had to figure out what that meant. 
So I'm curious when you mentioned that you didn't realize you were going to be a different person and your partner was going to be a very different person. What does that mean? What sort of changes do people experience in their own selves as they transition to parenthood? Well, I think becoming a parent is one of the most vulnerable, transformative life events. Hmm. I mean, there's so many hopes and fears in the act and the act of becoming a parent is a new identity that you're never recused from. You're never not a parent. And there is no other experience like that with like the Mm. relentlessness of it. You know, I remember like one night in early parenting, I don't know how old Jude was, but Jude's our son. Um, But he, I was so tired and he was crying in the middle of the night. And I remember having this thought of like, somebody bring in the cavalry you know like Mm. and then it like hit me i'm like i'm the cavalry (laughs) i am his mother like you know like that is me now and i never had like a responsibility like that to um another person um even being responsible to my marriage and being responsible to the choice I made and being in my marriage was nothing like being responsible as a parent. Hmm. And it's endless in its responsibility. I mean, parents like listening to this, I mean, after, I don't even know how many months of the pandemic were just like in like navigating, how do you best like juggle all the different needs of your child for the hmm. social needs, the safety needs. I mean, it's a tremendous responsibility that we don't get a, break from. Hmm. Um, so that that in itself had a transformative impact, I think, on me and my husband. But then also all those hopes and fears about like, I mean, everybody wants to come into parenthood. I mean, probably not everybody, but I think most people come into parenthood wanting to like do something differently than their parents did, do mm-hmm. something better. You know, even with great parents, there's always room for like, something to be better or different. And you don't also Zach, like you don't really know what you're doing either. Like, so there's like everybody, like you learn in early parenthood, there's like no learning curve. Mm -hmm. Like just every moment you're learning like how to meet this person as they are, your child, your baby, a new moment by moment by moment. And there's such a vulnerability in that. And you're witnessing, you're, you're watching your partner do that in tandem they're watching you do that and you're both kind of fumbling around with like varying you know moments of success and failure and like watching each other you know and the Mm -hmm. stakes they feel high you know having an older child now i realize like things turn out okay but Mm -hmm. in in the beginning of it you know it's like oh my god they need a nap you know like it's just Yeah, there's that big transition point, I think, for a lot of parents from like the first child to the second is like the first child like put something in their mouth and you're like, oh, my God, what's that? What is that? And then the second one, you're like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. That's how they (laughs) that's how they explore the world. Right. Exactly. That experience that you don't have as brand new parents leads for like a confidence and an ease and like sea legs of like it's okay if they don't nap today or like they're safe enough doing this. But when you don't have that experience, you just have a lot of hopes and fears, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, some say that there's literally nothing that can prepare a person and all that it takes to become a parent. 
And you mentioned how in dealing with your own challenges of your firstborn is that you really thought about what tools in the couples therapy toolbox that you might bring into the relationship. And then you also gave birth to this book. So what are, I mean, what's your opinion on how well can we prepare ourselves for this totally unknown and uncertain future that is raising a child to be its own independent being? That's a great question. I think it's the answer for me, at least, Zach, is it's a paradox. Mm. Like on one hand, there is no real preparation. It's really on the job training. Mm -hmm. And you learn as you go because when your baby, however it is, however it comes to you, whether if you have a birthing person or there's an adoption or there's a surrogate, like it, no matter how they come into your family, they are their own person and they have their own journey and their own personality. So you're going to have to be getting a person that hasn't getting to know a person who's never existed before. Neither mm -hmm. have you ever existed as a parent before. So like on one hand, like you cannot prepare for it. And on the other hand, you can be really thoughtful and thinking beyond the birth or like welcoming your baby home, however it is they come home. Mm. You can like think about like, you know, what kind of care do I need postpartum? Or like, you know, how can I, how can I bring my family in? How can I, and like, of course, this is like, you know, really where baby bomb shines. It's like, how can I shore up my partnership? How can we solidify mm. our team you know, our strengths together, what agreements can we make? So we're better prepared in the things we can for, I'm doing air quotes, like control. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a lot of emphasis put on like how couples can prepare for their marriage to be overhauled and changed with that high level of responsibility and stress or, or fiscal stress or, you know, physical stress to the change in your sex life, all of these different changes. I don't think there's a lot of a cultural conversation mm. about that, but putting consideration in beforehand can be helpful. And at the same time, Zach, I hold it with that paradox and you're gonna have to do a lot of on the job learning, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, I, I do really think a lot of life is understanding how paradoxical it can be and be able to hold two contradictory ideas in our minds. And you mentioned a few things like showing up the partnership, thinking about what kind of care a person might need postpartum. So tell us a little bit, entire listeners a little bit unfamiliar with the book about the basic idea in how you approach helping parents weather the storm. So the book is based on 10 guiding principles. And all 10 guiding principles fall under the first one, and that's the couple comes first. Hmm. And this can be radical to parents or non-parents or people who never want to be parents or want to be parents. Because as a culture, we're not used to putting, not a, I mean, I'm not saying to put another person first, because that would be um, more like codependency, but to put the relationship first. And so that means that both partners are, they have a shared level of power and responsibility to co-create the relationship that works for both of them on a moment to moment basis. And they're communicating with what they need. They're anticipating what the other might need. They're helping care for each other. 
They're making sure that each person feels safe and secure because we know from attachment theory, when people feel safe and secure, they can be their best selves. Mm. And of course, by doing this, by creating this powerhouse relationship, it's imperfect powerhouse relationship. So let's like be real, like we're all human. By doing so, you're able to offer that sense of safety and security to each other, but to your child. Mm. You get to like offer your child, like they don't have to worry about your partnership. You guys are taking care of it. And they're watching you and learning. So this is what it means to be in relationship. There isn't like a power dynamics. Both people matter. Both people are equally responsible. So that's my, the whole like first idea of the book is that the couple comes first. And then the rest of the book basically just shows you practically how to do that. Mm -hmm. And also like what makes doing that hard, Mm. which is like important to explore too, right? Absolutely. And that's what I I really loved about the book is how it does present 10 very practical guiding principles that you write, uh, create successful, secure, functioning, partnering and parenting. And absolutely that first lesson or the first principle to me is the most controversial. So I do want to go a little bit deeper into it when you talk about having the couple come first and not having the baby be number one. So let's go more into like why why you emphasize this, because I'm almost imagining just like the baby crying in the other room and then the couple being like, let's work on our communication skills. Because <laughs> I do think when people do have, you know, have a child, they're like, this child is now the biggest priority that's going to take precedence over all other things in our life. So why isn't putting the baby number one an effective strategy? Well, like, let's go to the example. Like, I mean, obviously, if your baby is crying and needs care, <laughs> like, you have to do that. And so the way to do both would be to make an agreement with your partner. We need to finish this conversation Mm. because we have to take care of our relationship. So like we're going to agree to when we're going to do that. And then also somebody has got to go take care of our child because babies need a lot of care. They're Mm. very vulnerable. They need like constant attunement. And so do partners. It's not to think about like, you're not thinking about neglect. It's thinking about like, what would putting the baby first look like? And like, what cost would that be to the partnership? That's a lot of pressure to put on a baby mm-hmm. to have to be number one or the, the glue that's keeping parents together. You want to take responsibility for being in your partnership and your partner should take responsibility for their choice in being with you. And you should let your baby be a baby, you know, mm-hmm. and and explore the world in that way. I mean, it's it's offering, again, like a lot of safety and security and ease to your baby to just get to be themselves and not have to think about like what could be going on between mom and mom or dad and dad or mom and dad, mm-hmm. you know? So that's why I'm proposing that parents put their partnership first. Absolutely. You know, I I think many people don't realize that new infants, their minds are like sponges. They're just absorbing so much about the world around them. And one of the biggest things they are absorbing is how mommy and daddy, or, you know, both daddies or both mommies are relating to each other. Is their Mm -hmm. connection, is their their security in... 
mm-hmm. this this family that I'm growing up in. And then later those things kind of manifest in what are known as attachment styles. Mm-hmm. And I want to get a little bit more into that because we haven't mentioned how this book is actually a collaboration with Stan Tatkin, who's kind of a well-known name in the world of psychotherapy. He kind of founded PACT, the psychobiological approach to couples therapy. So I'm curious how this collaboration came about and how maybe the psychobiological approach kind of informs just these principles and what you write about. Right. Yes. Zach. Yes. Dan Tacken is my co-author. He's also a very dear friend of mine. And, and I have studied with him, Hmm. studied PACT for many, many years. That's the PACT, the psychobiological approach to couple therapy is my therapeutic approach to couples. Hmm. And it's based in attachment theory, theory, neurobiology and arousal regulation. So this is based in science that when partners are able to offer them sense of safety and security, again, like we're just talking about safety and security, Mm -hmm. like telling your partner and allowing yourself to believe that we belong together. When you, when partners can embody that sense of trust and safety, then they can be free to do whatever creative endeavors they want to do, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Um, things outside the home, think it, any kind of inner work they want to do. They are offering each other as Bowlby, you know, who did attachment theory um, 40 years ago, John Bowlby, they're offering each other a secure base to explore themselves and the world from. And so when I was struggling with my husband, Charlie, after Jude was born in our marriage, I was at Stan and his wife, Tracy's house for dinner um, with Jude introducing I think it will stand to the for the first time Tracy had already met Jude but like I said they're really good friends of ours mm. introducing Jude to Stan for the first time I just like had like one of those real moments where I just looked at Stan and was like the struggle is real and he knows Charlie and I really well I mean we've been fr- family friends for over 10 years mm. so I was just like the struggle is real like this is really hard for Charlie and I I mean, I was like, we're figuring it out, but I mean, this is a journey. And I just said to him, like off the cuff, I was like, we should write a book about this and help people. Hmm. And and he th- like thought it was a great idea. And like a couple of weeks later brought it up to me. And then we started talking about it and envisioning it, what it would be and taking all of the work that he has done and wired for love and we do and your brain on love. I mean, he's, he is very pro- pro- prolific in his writings and talks. And, um, and so taking that with my experience and the feminism and what I bring to the table and kind of holding it in like the cultural context, um, we created Baby Bomb together. Yeah, yeah so it's a science-based guide. So when we say put, that we believe to put the couple first or it's, it's in the best interest of the family to do that, this is based on science. It's not just a, a belief. But of course, like, you know, how we present it in the book and how I talk to couples in my practice and talk to Stan, how Stan talks to couples too. It's like, this is what we know from the research, mm-hmm. like works, but like, what do you guys think? Because you guys are the ones who have to own it. So be discerning about it. Like, how how do you see this playing out? How do you see this benefiting you? Or how do you see it not benefiting you? And what would be 
difficult about it or where do you think you guys would really shine like really empowering people like we in the like we do this in the book even like don't just take what i'm saying like you guys decide what's best for you guys because it's your partnership like at the end of the day you two are the ones creating it not me and you you two mm -hmm. you know it's it's yours so we just wanted to help people with some guidelines the guiding principles and some of the exercises and the tools for people to try out and see what works for them mm. so i want to ask you more about cultivating that sense of safety, security, and trust that you mentioned. You went a little bit into attachment theory and how our loving relationships, our partner, kind of acts as a secure base. And to me, that's really foundational, I think, to a healthy and supportive mm -hmm. partnership. But I don't think most people see it that way. Like when you ask people about a loving relationships or why they're in a loving relationship, they'll probably talk about the romance or the sex or the passion that they have with this person. They won't necessarily be like, well, my partner is a secure base that allows me to explore the world. And <laughs> but even though that that's most likely very, very true. So to you, what are some of the most like foundational aspects of the deep connection with another person? And how can we cultivate that feeling of, as you mentioned, safety, security and trust? Right. Well, I think also, Zach, what you're kind of speaking to is how difficult it is to make that leap of faith and imagine trusting somebody with like your most vulnerable self hmm. that you are safe with them like they do care about your hopes and your dreams and your fantasies and your creative endeavors all of the things about you for the long haul hmm. not just for a trend or a season but i mean we're talking about a lifetime where you, you you're having babies parents die jobs are lost i mean life throws i mean like everything we know from the last 20 months life throws so many curveballs mm -hmm. and so having like that sense of um trust and care from another person i mean you really can't put a price on that mm -hmm. but i think then kind of bringing in attachment theory we can look at why it's really difficult. I mean, attachment theory does point to like, if you have, if you are um, somewhere on the attachment continuum with insecure attachment, it's going to actually be very terrifying to your body to mm. trust somebody else like that. And then on top of that, we also live in a very individualistic, pull yourself up from your bootstraps culture. So even with secure attachment, people are supposed to take care of themselves. We don't have like, even looking at the systemic, we don't have paid parental leave that just happened. Like we're, we're putting so much on the individual. And of course that ends up in relationships mm -hmm. in all of these like very subtle ways of like, you're sad, well do something about it. As opposed to like, you're sad, I care, I care even when it's inconvenient for me to care. I care because mm. that's what we agreed to do for each other. And that's what you're gonna do for me when I'm sad because life breaks your heart sometimes. Mm. And to think that it's not going to is very naive. Mm. That's beautiful. I love that sentiment. I care even when it's inconvenient for me to care, like even when it's hard. Sometimes, especially with children too, we often have to let them make their own mistakes. Mm -hmm. 
And we have, we find that too with our partners also is that sometimes, you know, we have to watch them kind of fail at something and support them and love them throughout no matter what. Yeah. I love it that you do that. Yes. That's <laughs> really, that's really showing up for your partnership. So we already talked about the principle of the couple coming first, which is number one. And then later, this is, I want to jump ahead to principle number six, because it kind of deals with uh, the same psychobiological approach we've been talking about. And principle number six, I'll just read it right now. So the principle is you and your partner co-regulate. You engage in daily practices that help you manage your nervous systems for relationship restoration as well as preventive care. So what's that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, what that means is like I was saying about like for different people that fall on the attachment continuum for all of us, attachment's part of it, but then there's just the human experience of our bodies want to feel safe wherever they are. And if they don't feel Mm. safe, they become preoccupied with finding that sense of safety. A lot of us doing that can be very relationship and self-harming. So let me like break that down. So if you're not connecting, you and your partner are like living your lives, you're busy, you have a baby, or you have two big jobs or all of the above, okay? And you're there, mm-hmm. you're doing a lot of parallel play. Okay. So then, but one of you like gets a call at work that's really stressful and brings up a lot of feelings for you, like um insecurity, maybe shame, maybe like you just feel shitty. Okay. You take that to your partner, and if they're not meeting you where you're at, or if you don't have like a base of feeling like safe in your body with them you're going to, you're, mm. you have a human need to feel safe. So you're going to try to find that. So that behavior could look like pulling away into your iPhone. You know, it could look mm. like having more than a glass of wine. I mean, it could look like attacking your partner for something they're doing that just like you're trying to connect with them. You don't even know what you're doing. And before you know it, you're picking a fight. So for like preventative care, we teach couples like how to connect with each other really as two nervous systems being face to face, eye to eye, attuned to the moment to moment changes that each person's making. And these like, these are not like grand gestures. Like it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. this like big, big hoopla. I mean, like Charlie and I were busy people. You know, right before I got in this podcast, he's he was working. I walked up to him. I got down like at his level, told him I was working or coming out to be with you, Zach, and how I felt about it. We just looked at each other. I could see the softness and the warmth in his face. I could feel that in my body, that that comfort. He didn't even have to say anything besides good luck. And then I was like, okay. I mean, it's very like simple, but like, But all of those moments can like lead you to, you have the same interaction where you get a stressful call at work. And instead of, I mean, you can like sometimes, sometimes I can conjure up like when I'm stressed out from like our son or work or whatever the many things in life stresses me out in 2021, I can conjure up like Charlie's face and it's actually soothing Mm. to me. And he does the same for me because we do these regular daily practices in the book. Hmm. 
just about being with each other without phones, without other people, but Jude can be there. It's just about gazing into each other's eyes and allowing that to like signal to our nervous system to come into the present moment. Mm. And remember, I'm not in this alone. I'm in this with my favorite person and he's not alone. He's in Mm. it with me. And sometimes he really bugs me and I'm still in it with him. And same, sometimes I'm very annoying and he's still in it with me. (laughs) You know, I mean, we're people, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so in the, in that chapter, there's like a bunch of different ways of doing that, but it's about like having that embodied connection in your nervous system of safety, offering that to mm. each other. Yeah. I appreciate your honesty and vulnerability and also sharing your own experience. And I too really just enjoy and in, in hearing about and learning about the research on how our close interpersonal relationships both soothe and improve our physiological wellness. Even the studies that show, yes, if someone is like in the hospital and then somebody is there to squeeze their hand, Mm -hmm. that they feel less pain. Subjectively, they're in less pain. And it's that connection with another person that helps us feel less pain, bring more joy, be less stressed, be more at peace. And the better a connection is, the better two people are at that sort of co-regulation. So my kind of follow-up question to that is, well, when does healthy co-regulation interdependence turn into unhealthy codependence? Well, it doesn't turn into it for one because interdependence is That's a, good. Yeah, interdependence is about two fully imperfectly perfect people helping each other and helping themselves out every day, where no one's mm. needs are more important than the other person's needs. Like, yes, there's time, there's seasons in partnership where one person is needier than another person, and then there's reciprocity where that comes back. Like, there's an awareness of it. And there's like a give and a take that's interdependence. Mm-hmm. Codependence is I'm afraid this relationship will, will end if I don't put this other person first, or I'm mm. afraid I won't get my needs met unless I'm take, take, taking. It's a, it's an insecure model based on a fear of, of a fear of conflict of, and of ultimately of the relationship ending or changing. And there isn't authenticity there where people are coming to each other um, and saying like, this isn't working for me. There's a lot of unsaid things Mm. in a codependent relationship. So it's possible to take a codependent relationship and transform it to an interdependent relationship. But generally once you have like you're rocking and rolling in an interdependent relationship, you're just becoming more and more differentiated. I mean, we know this from psychology too, the whole idea of interdependence is actually aiding you on your journey of individuation. And so mm. it's unlikely that people would go um, uh, move back into like a codependent system, but I'm sure it happens. I mean, especially I'm sure it happens if like stressful events happens, like there's a death in the family or, you know, um, life throws you curveballs, or maybe like the birth of a child, you know, um, but hopefully partners can realize that, oh, we've fallen into that thing where I'm afraid that the relationship will end. So I'm not showing up for the relationship. And then they can talk it out together. 
It's so interesting to hear you talk about codependence as being rooted in fear. Uh, you mentioned the two statements, I'm afraid this relationship will end if I don't put this person first, mm-hmm. or I'm afraid I won't get my needs yet if I don't continually take, take, take. Mm-hmm. So I'm almost like seeing this transition or just this flow of moving from fear mm-hmm. to love or moving from fear at least to security. But where do you think that fear is rooted in? Right. I mean, it's probably rooted in early attachment wounding, Mm. you know, witnessing that was the way it was in my family. I think myself included, a lot of us got into a lot of couples I work with, myself included, got into bad relationship patterns because I didn't know any differently. Mm. Because I watched like an insecure model, you know, um, Mm -hmm. my parents didn't have like authentic equal shared power conversations they didn't they didn't they weren't big on repair they were busy working you know making it through the day themselves and not putting an emphasis on the value of relationships so i was like oh so that's how you do this you know you like that's it's not like something that's valued and then in you know getting my masters in psychology I was like, oh, wow, you know, that there's so many other ways to do this than that. Hmm. And luckily, like my husband, Charlie, felt the same way. He was like, I want to do something radical and different and build something really cool with you. Like, I, you know, I want to be safe and authentic and intimate with you and have enough space to be myself and be close enough to feel secure And I mean, we didn't say it in that language because we didn't have that language, but it like, you know, Mm -hmm. we're just like, you know, fumbling around in the dark, figuring it out based on psychology theory and, and trying things out. And then also like looking to um, mentor couples like Stan and Tracy have a really great partnership. And I was like, oh, so there's like another way to do this. And we became friends with (laughs) Stan and Tracy right around the time when we got married. And so we were really eager to figure something out, something different. And it's like, we were Mm -hmm. both like taking notes because we both believed that we deserved something different than how we had grown up. Mm. And so then we just been on that journey to figure out what that is. And are still on that journey forever, I guess, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I absolutely agree. I think that growth-oriented mindset is what so critical for any people struggling in partnership is recognizing the conflicts are normal, the problems are normal, and it's your task in partnership and also in life to grow from these challenges and to never stop growing because the potential is unlimited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. So I want to move on a little bit uh, to sex because I think this is one of the biggest things that come up when, when people think about new parents is, you know, as sex goes out the window, as as the sleep goes down and they focus so much on the child. We're kind of moving on to guiding principle number eight, mm-hmm. where you tell people that you and your partner should redefine romance to keep your couple connection alive. So when we talk about redefining romance, okay, so what do you think is like the definition and then what are we redefining it to? Right. Well, let's talk about sex after baby. Okay, because there's just like not nearly enough conversation about this. If you are a parent and your sex life, you're dissatisfied with your sex life, the research says that you're part of the majority. It's something like 71%, and this is both genders. They don't say in this study 
um, what the sexual orientation is of the couple, but it is like both mm. both genders, men and women, are equally dissatisfied after the birth of a child with their sex lives. Mm. This is to be expected. So 70% are dissatisfied. You know, is that like immediately after and does it last for a certain period of time? I have to check that stat. Um, I actually have it here because I've been talking so much about sex after baby. Sorry, no, it's 59% are dissatisfied mm. after the birth of their tra- their child. And it doesn't say exactly when, but I'm, I'm guessing this is like um, probably a year after the birth mm-hmm. of their child. And again, like both genders, it's not like in the media, it seems like it's like mostly men that are dissatisfied, but women are too, turns out. Um, and so why is that? Well, your sex life is completely changed. Obviously for birthing people, your body's completely changed. You carried mm-hmm. and birthed a baby. And however that birth went or then like however the pregnancy went, there is a, I mean, it is an epic event on the body. And mm. there, I think there's also for birthing people, a whole psychological journey of, because it's very generous of birthing people to share their bodies with their baby. It's obviously it's a huge honor too. And it's really cool as somebody who's gotten to do that. It's like, like a really cool thing that like biology gave, um, you know, birthing people, the ability to do, but it's also a very generous act. And then mm-hmm. birthing the baby is also a generous, generous act. And there's, and then for breastfeeding people, like that's incredibly draining on the body and like a sacred bonding event also, but also like, it's a big deal on your body to nurse for however long you nurse. Um, I think there's a psychological thing that happens to birthing people where they use their body in such a generous way to help bring babies into the world that they lose Mm -hmm. touch with being entitled to use their bodies for their own pleasure again. Mm. There's a journey back of remembering my body likes pleasure. I'm entitled to pleasure. My body likes to do things besides take care of another creature. It likes to move. It likes good food. It likes physical touch and physical intimacy. And I and I think that that's something that a lot of birthing people don't even realize is going on because they're so in the in the day to day act of taking care of a baby with their body, quite literally. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's like a really big part of it. And then I also think then, of course, then like the sleep deprivation and the lack of spontaneity. Like you can't just all of a sudden be in the mood for sex and have sex anymore. And also sex probably needs to get redefined depending on how the birth went, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that is something that like couples, I think, are like alone and trying to figure it out. And you know how things are, Zach, when you're alone with them, that's when like shame can creep in. Like, am I the only person who doesn't want to have sex anymore? Or am I the only person who feels like my partner's rejecting me? You know, like, and no, you're not, you know, but there isn't like a, a conversation about it. So in that isolation, I think shame can come and then the, then the divide um, between like having a, a sex life that you both enjoy can become like greater. It can be harder to talk about it, like even with yourself or your partner. So 
talking with birthing people about the birth event often by the other partner asking about it. How is your body healing? Mm. How are you feeling psychologically about your body? That really lends to physical intimacy coming from that kind of emotional intimacy and attunement. And I think just a lot of non-birthing partners don't know to ask about that and to really mm -hmm. encourage birthing people to have time to connect with their bodies. Like we talk about in the book about like pouring a bath, being by yourself, um, connecting with your own body again, not as a person taking care of an, a newborn or an infant or a baby, but as an individual that like likes their body. Um, mm. And I think non-birthing partners can be like a very important part of that tender journey, just kind of knowing um, to be attuned to that and how to get like how to have those conversations with each other how to talk about we're not having sex and i miss it you know and mm. how to talk about the feelings of like of what it's like to be rejected not in a blaming way but like like this i'm hurting and i'm, I'm not I, and i don't want to put pressure on you to have sex i want you to take the time you need and i'm here to redefine sex with you and i want to be seen too i mean all of that is mm. like about like having an interdependent like secure functioning relationship where both people's needs are important and 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 considered and no one's are denied well it's interesting because what's coming up for me listening to you is you know you're talking about oh the person doing the breastfeeding for example is giving up much of their body and they forget about their own pleasure but I was also thinking that well this is part of the bonding process too physical connection with the baby does create a sense of bonding and that in of itself can be a, a bit of conflict in the relationship when one person is getting all their touch getting all their connection right with the baby and the other one feels left out and then when they want that physical touch the person who's interacting with the baby more ends up being you know full of touch they don't want anymore right the whole thing of being over touched right I mean, that really takes like some like exploring like what's underneath that, you know, it's usually mm. not just like, I don't like I've been I've had this baby on me all day and I'm I'm I am bonding, but I'm also touched out. And now you mm -hmm. it's usually connected to I'm getting the sense you want something from me that I don't have to give. And so that's a different conversation, you know, like that is like the non-birthing person can come to the table with like that. I don't want to ask something from you right now that you don't have to give. And I want to connect with you physically. So how can we figure that mm -hmm. out together? Can I hold you and we watch a movie together? You know, can I pour a mm -hmm. bath for us? Can I like do something that doesn't feel like I'm asking more of you than you just you don't have right now. And it's like with that attitude shift, you'd be surprised what couples can come up with when because over touch is not really about all the touch. It's about all the needs with the touch. And I'm not saying that mm -hmm. non birthing people don't have needs that are important. They do. Um, but in order to get those needs met, they have to be attuned to where their partner is. Mm. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. You know, when you're mentioning like, well, when there's disconnect in relationship, you might have to talk about your feelings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, exactly. Right. Yes, you might have to, you know, ask your partner open-ended questions about how they are feeling, what you can do for them. That you even mentioned, you know, oftentimes physical intimacy arises from emotional intimacy and attunement. Right, right. You might have to talk about your feelings and like and I'm also add Zach, and you might have to listen. Oh no. <laughs> to how your partner is feeling too. You know, yeah. like yes. So that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Kara, for coming on. And unfortunately, we didn't have time to get into redefining romance, but you might be able to answer my final question. Mm-hmm. But those wanting to know what it means to redefine romance can just check out the book Baby Bum, a relationship survival guide for new parents. It's a lovely read. But I have to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Mm, I like that question. I wish everybody knew how much it could feed you loving others and caring for others. Mm. Not in um, a self-sacrificing way, but in a empowered way of offering grace and generosity of spirit to those who have earned the trust for you to be able to do that. Um, That you can collect a lot of dividends from those acts Mm. of love. Love is a wonderful investment, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It's amazing returns. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kara Happy, for coming on to the show. And for our listeners that want to learn more about you and perhaps work with you, how can they find you? Um, yes, come to karahoppy.com, K-A-R-A-H-O-P-P-E, or find me on the gram at karahoppy. The Instagram for those, the, you know, for not everyone in the lingo. Right, the Instagram. <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Facebook also at Kara Hoppy, but I tend to like the gram the best. And then are you still doing virtual re- retreats? Yes, I'll be offering one um, in the spring of 2022 and in the fall of 2022. If you're in the Los Angeles area, I'm going to be offering an in-person one-day event um, late February, early March in the Pasadena area, just like a one day couples retreat. So the best way to find out is join my mailing list. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kara, for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you check out Baby Bomb, a relationship survival guide for new parents. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Kara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 